Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots Show, heard every Saturday evening from 6 p.m. until 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we play the best as far as genre music in the roots field of gospel, jazz, blues, country, hip-hop, soul, a little bit of everything. And also we get into the roots of different stories, uh, historical events, historical figures, and we're going to talk about a legendary figure tonight. And someone who should be known on everyone's, the tip of everyone's mouth, but unfortunately a lot of folks still don't know the great Fannie Lou Hamer. They don't really know what she did, so we're going to have an expert to talk about her tonight, her life and legacy, and you can join in the conversation here at 424-675-8315, And before we get to our guest, I'm going to play Fannie Lou Hamer singing. And I play, and some of you have listened to me on this show and other shows over the years, No, I play Fannie Lou Hamer's a lot as far as the singing, but we're going to play um, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And this is Fannie Lou Hamer on the Root and Root Show, the legendary civil rights black liberation activist. Let's hear it right now. Go tell it on the mountain.
the great Fannie Lou Hamer, who we'll be talking about this evening on the Root and Root Show, and that was go, her rendition of Go Telling on the Mountain. And you can call in here at 424-675-8315. And as I have my guest this evening, I hope that my guest is on the line here, but I'll you know, make sure. Um, is this Megan? Yes. Good Good evening, Greg. Well, good evening. I just want to make sure of this. Uh, I have on the line Megan Parker Brooks, who is the author of the book, a superb book and a much-needed book, I must add, A Voice That Could Stir an Army, Fannie Lou Hamer and the Rhetoric of the Black Freedom Movement. And it's on the University Press of Mississippi. And Megan Parker Brooks is a – I'm not going to read the back of this. You're an expert on Fannie Lou Hamer. I'm glad you're out there. Because a lot of folks, you know, as I read this book, I started thinking about, I was comparing how she is portrayed to how Dr. Martin Luther King is portrayed, as far as there's this belief that, you know, Martin Luther King just did the I Have a Dream speech the one time at the Washington Monument, and he's just this dreamer, and that's all a myth. And people rarely talk about the other side, well, at least we do on this show, about his economic beliefs, his beliefs about ending poverty, ending war, and all of that. And the same thing holds true with Fannie Lou Hamer because there's the myth out there that she was, it's always portrayed as a sharecropper. She was a sharecropper who was beaten because she wanted to register to vote. She gave a speech at the 1964 uh, Democratic uh, Party convention about being seated as part of her uh, Mississippi, Mississippi Freedom um Party, and that's about it. That's usually what you hear. And the dominant word is always sharecropper. And sometimes you hear illiterate, you know, or something like that. But you show in this book that Fannie Lou Hamer was far more than that. And I'm just happy because I knew that, but a lot of people just don't know that. And I want you to start the discussion with I guess I'm going to go to the end of the book as far as you at the ceremony, I guess it's the dedication of the statue of Fannie Lou Hamer and your feelings, because that sums up just how I felt, because it really touched me, but just tell my listeners about your feelings being there. Sure, Greg, yeah. So I had worked for a couple years with the National Fannie Lou Hamer Statue um, Board, their education fund and the statue fund, and so I was really excited to be out in Ruleville, Mississippi, where we dedicated a beautiful bronze statue of Mrs. Hamer uh, in this great active speaking pose, and if you're ever around the Delta, uh, you must stop by and see it. It's at her grave site there. Um, And, you know, I had, had a great weekend, and I enjoyed listening to the tributes that her friends and fellow activists had given about her and it was the final day I think this is the part of the book that you're referring to Greg um, that I reflect on here in the afterward and there was just something that weekend that I just felt a bit amiss about and I'd been studying Fannie Lou Hamer for years and I'd been working on different uh, with different activist groups to try and keep her legacy alive and 
I realized that over the course of the weekend, um, as I kind of put it in the book, that people were feeling generally too good about themselves. <laughs> they, we were patting each other on the backs, and we were all right. congratulating each other for this job well done. Uh, and I just felt that in true Fannie Lou Hamer, if we were truly to bring forth Fannie Lou Hamer's legacy, um, we would have been focusing more on the work that remains. And that was Fannie Lou Hamer's um, reason for being. I, she continued until her dying day to work on the problems that remained. And there certainly are many problems with race relations um, and things that she advocated for, uh, like economic rights, economic empowerment, um, access to health care, um, affordable education, you know, several, many issues that she worked on in her lifetime. Uh, she spoke out against the Vietnam War, so I think she certainly would have something to say about all the wars that uh, we're going to right now. Um, and so I just felt standing there looking at her statue and looking at those who had worked so hard to bring that statue there um, that, yes, we should be proud of our efforts, but that we should also be focused on uh, the work that remains and, and what her, what Fannie Lou Hamer would be compelling us uh, to continue on working for uh, um, to, to keep her legacy alive. And I know, uh, Megan, that there are some listeners out there saying that, what, Fannie Lou Hamer talked about the Vietnam War? She talked about economic yeah. justice? No, wait, wait, hold on a minute. <laughs> she sure did. You know, but I want you to give a brief little history about how, you know, the meeting with her that she went to that had James Foreman and James yeah. Bevel there. Yeah. And talk about what got her into this. And listeners, you're going to hear names that you usually hear on this show, especially some of you who saw the movie Selma, because I also want you, Megan, mm -hmm. to talk about if you've seen that movie, because I, mm -hmm. I raved about it at first, but I've had some second thoughts after talking yeah. to historians and just examining it on my own. But I want you to talk, first of all, talk about the first meeting that kind of inspired uh, Miss Hamer. Just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Sure. Um, so this meeting was held in 1964, in August of 1964, uh, in her small town of Ruleville, Mississippi. And the meeting was part of a larger campaign that the council, um, the COFO, the Council of Federated Organizations, which was largely made up of members from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, they were holding these mass meetings across um, the, the South, and they were focusing primarily at this point in their campaign on the Delta because they realized that um, the overwhelming uh, majority of the population in the Mississippi Delta uh, was African American, and if they could get this group to vote, um, to register and vote, then they could have a really dominant voting block, and so right. uh, they could at least um, expose you know, the injustices that they faced in trying to vote, if nothing else, um, in terms of getting this political power. So they were holding these mass meetings, and uh, Greg, I love the song that you played at the outset. That that's one of my all-time favorites uh, that Fannie Lou Hamer sang, but they would play, they would sing songs like Go Tell It on the Mountain, which they would adapt to movement purposes. So as you can tell, that traditional um, hymn there is adapted by Hamer um, to talk about uh, things like you, you see the hypocrites turning back, those are the folks dressed in black, and she's talking about the ways in which the ministers would sometimes turn their back on the movement, or she's talking about uh, the children that Moses led, and here she's talking 
talking about Bob Moses um, of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So what they would do is hold these mass meetings across the Mississippi Delta, and they would encourage blacks to come out in the evenings after they'd worked in the fields all day, and they would talk about their rights. And so they divided this up usually between a secular um, address, and in this case, James Foreman of SNCC gave that address um, at Fannie Lou Hamer's Williams Baptist Church in Ruleville, and then James Bevel of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, gave the more religious address. And so through both of the messages, and these messages certainly uh, paired up and complemented one another, they would urge African Americans to believe that it was in fact um, their duty, their their responsibility, their moral, um, that they should be compelled morally to try and register to vote. And so some of your listeners may be wondering, you know, why they went to such efforts, the organizers of these mass meetings, to try to appeal, um, to try to try to get blacks to get out the vote. And the problem was that they were combating um, severe, aggressive, deadly white supremacist terror and backlash. So this is the same area and where... And, and Megan, was, Megan you're, being, yeah. you're being very kind, you know. Actually, it was all-out war. It was Absolutely. a war zone. It was not, I mean, you know... It, yeah. I mean, this was serious war. You're talking about for some of the younger listeners out there who don't really, who just base their whole history on seeing movies like Salma and The Butler, and they think that's the history. The fact of the matter is, it was, it was war. It It was was what you see. It's what you see going on in the world, be it in the Middle East, be it you know all over the world in Ukraine right now, Afghanistan. It was out and out bloodshed and war in the country. The Civil War had never ended, in my, it was my opinion, that it had just well, yeah, continued. Well, yeah, you know, Hamer, uh, the guns, uh, Hamer had Knight Rider shooting into the house where she stayed after she was, you know, kicked off the plantation for trying to register. Um, you know, this is the area where, I, as I mentioned, where Emmett Till was lynched. Um, this, there was a severe backlash uh, to blacks trying to get the vote out in this area, um, and it was it was deadly. So, yes, the members of um, COFO were trying to overcome that and trying to encourage blacks to risk their lives and their livelihood uh, to try and cast ballots in the Mississippi Delta. It definitely wasn't easy. And listen, you can call again. Four two four six seven five eight three one five. I'm talking to Megan Parker Brooks, the author of the book uh, "A Voice That Could Stir an Army." Fannie Lou Hamer and the rhetoric of the Black Freedom Movement on the University Press of Mississippi. And if you heard the voice at the beginning, if you've listened to the show a number of times, you know I play Fannie Lou Hamer listeners, and you heard that voice, and I know it stirred you. If it didn't, I don't know what will stir you, but that definitely <laughs> would will. But, you know, talk about, too, because there's a lot. Well, first I want to ask you. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, you know, James Foreman, James Bevel. We just talked about them. And they're mentioned in the book Selma, I mean, in the movie Selma. Mm -hmm. And I had issues about how Foreman in particular was betrayed and how SNCC was betrayed. And reading your book and reading other books, but reading your book currently, there's a whole different SNCC and what is seen in the book and what a lot of people may believe about SNCC and also believe about John Lewis in the sense he's his role in it. And just talk about SNCC, Ella Baker, who was um, yeah. became a dear friend of Fannie Lou Hamer, and just yeah. Fannie Lou Hamer's role in SNCC. Sure. So, 
you know, just to continue on with that chronology that we started with that mass meeting. So Hamer was motivated to register to vote. She went down to the courthouse. She tried to cast a ballot. She was kicked off the plantation where she lived for just trying to cast a ballot. They were harassed by the police there at the courthouse, the group that was um, motivated from that mass meeting. And, you know, at that point, uh, you know, Ambassador Andrew Young told me when I talked with him about this book, he said that, you know, getting fired from that plantation was the best thing that could have happened to Fannie Lou Hamer because it completely freed her to work full-time for the movement. So at that point, once she was fired from the plantation, once she had nothing left to lose, she became, she became SNCC's oldest field worker. She was 44 years old, and she became, um, this is, you know, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and here's this 44-year-old woman um, who starts going out and trying to get people to vote. Uh, and she's, you know, a, a dynamite public speaker, so they feature her at these mass meetings. Um, you know, the, of course, as you mentioned, Greg, at the outset, they put her um, front and center of their Credentials Committee Challenge at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, where her testimony outshines, you know, Martin Luther King also spoke that day, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP spoke that day, but it's Fannie Lou Hamer's eight-minute speech that people remember the most and that brought the committee members to tears. And so Hamer stayed with SNCC um, through 1965 into 1966, and then, um, you know, she marches along on the Meredith March, and she's part of that uh, effort. But she starts to um, part ways with SNCC um, as they become, you know, a, a more, um, you know, more militant organization, I would say. And one of the points that really drove them apart um, was the expulsion of whites from the organization. Fannie Lou Hamer was fundamentally opposed to that. But she never, you know, fully broke ties with them. And, in fact, Stokely Carmichael spoke at her funeral, um, and she, you know, counted members of SNCC among her dearest friends um, until, you you know, until her death. So uh, that was sort of her trajectory with, with SNCC. And it's so interesting, uh, you mentioned some of the militants within SNCC um, who would be perceived as militants, and she said that one of her best friends, according to your book, was mm-hmm. someone I, I didn't even know she had ever met. And I yeah. thought I knew everything about Fannie Lou Hamer, but <laughs> talk about her relationship to, to Malcolm X, because I didn't Absolutely. even know this. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, again, this is great. A part of her connection with SNCC that I forgot to mention was that Harry Belafonte sent um, several members of SNCC on a a tour of uh, West Africa, and uh, Hamer was included on that tour, um, along with, you know, Bob Moses, uh, John Lewis, um, several folks from SNCC went along uh, on that tour following the Democratic National Convention Challenge in 1964. Belafonte saw that they were very exhausted, and this was supposed to be a trip that kind of lifted their spirits. Um, Foreman was on that trip as well. Uh, so they, they um, went to Africa, and several members uh, went on um, after they toured the west coast of Africa um, to tour different places on the continent. And there, several members of SNCC ran into Malcolm X at the airport, of all places, and they got to talking. And, you know, at this time, uh, SNCC was becoming more militant. So this is post-Democratic National Convention 1964, um, and Malcolm X was starting to think about the viability of an integrated solution to um, the problems in the United States, and so it was sort of it was a serendipitous time in both of uh, the both the trajectory of SNCC and, and Malcolm X's trajectory as an activist. And so they got together um, at the airport and they you know established a relationship. And when they came back to the United States, Malcolm X invited uh, SNCC members to come out to Harlem and speak um, to to different audiences in Harlem. And so Fannie Lou Hamer, of course, was spot 
spotlighted uh, at those events, both singing and speaking. Um, and, you know, she delivered uh, one testimony in particular that I talk about in the book um, where she's really trying to drum up support for the 1965 Demo- or congressional challenge, rather, which um, if I, I could go into, I think it's it's sort of the counterpoint to Selma that I like to bring up to people who are are very interested in the history of Selma but don't necessarily know about the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party's congressional challenge, which was going on at the same time, and that was something that yeah, please, Fannie Lou Hamer yeah, talked please about. Bring that up. Yeah, yeah so. Yeah, I mean, to answer your question though, about Fannie Lou Hamer's relationship with Malcolm X, she had, you know, the utmost respect for him, and he respected her, you know, like a mother or a sister. He talks about her in his addresses that way, um, and, you know, she just, uh, you know, really respected and believed in, I think, his passion, um, if not always the particular um, policy ideas that, that he held, because she also, Fannie Lou Hamer also, um, you know, was a friend of Martin Luther King's, and um, she definitely saw tension between their ideologies, but had a lot of respect for both men. And that's, you know, that's really amazing to know that she, you know, she was, you know, she knew him, and that's something that has mm-hmm. not been brought out until this book, from what I've seen, until this book, because I did not know that at all. And, you know, it's so funny, you know, you talk a little bit about the NAACP, and but talk about this whole issue after the convention. I, I think it's during the '64 convention, maybe just a little mm-hmm. after, where there are folks within the NAACP, and I have to mention Roy Wilkins, who's the yeah. director of the NAACP back then, who really don't want people like Hamer speaking for the movement. And just talk a little bit about that, because there's a yeah, dynamic that's going on. Yeah. Yeah, there was really a power struggle. So, you know, I mentioned at the outset that um, one th- one of the things that COFO did and, you know, SNCC um, did really well in the mid early to mid-1960s is they started mobilizing um, the majority of African Americans in Mississippi. And so this is, we're talking about day laborers, sharecroppers, maids, um, you know, domestics, the, the sort of everyday person in Mississippi. Up until then, NAACP campaigns um, in Mississippi, voting campaigns, had focused more on the black middle class, so more on teachers and lawyers, um, and, and not necessarily on the majority of blacks in the state. And so the, the, the break that we see in the early 1960s to mid-1960s is really a focus um, that COFO and SNCC are making on trying to empower everyday people um, across the state to vote. And so um, with that, we see people like Fannie Lou Hamer emerging. And so um, as Fannie Lou Hamer's emerging, and this is sort of SNCC's focus to empower um, sharecroppers and maids and day laborers, they're really making her the face of, of that voting rights campaign. And this made people like um, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP nervous. He was worried that um, if the movement projected people like Fannie Lou Hamer to the forefront, um, that you know these stereotypes about African Americans that white Americans in the North or in the West or across the nation had that you know African Americans were um, you shouldn't get the vote because they weren't uh, literate or they weren't um, as refined um, that that projecting someone like Fannie Lou Hamer who really just had a grade school education would um, confirm these stereotypes and somehow um, work against their purposes so Roy Wilkins was trying to essentially shut Hamer down and get her away from the cameras and get her um, away from the dais to speak and um, and instead to foreground, um, you know, what who had been at the forefront of uh, the black freedom movement for generations, and that would be well-educated African Americans and not 
um, people who had, you know, little education and little access. But what I argue in the book and what I think SNCC did so well was they said, you know, absolutely not. Let's project someone like Fannie Lou Hamer who, uh, who deserves the right to vote because all Americans deserve the right to vote, right, regardless of our level of education or, our, you know, how much money we have in our bank account or, you know, our, our status. That, that, that's right. not what determines our right to vote. And so they were using Hamer and um, her fellow activists tell me that this was very calculated. They were trying to project as someone like Fannie Lou Hamer to say, you know, look what's happening to these ordinary people who are trying to vote. Like, this is not what America should stand for. Everybody should have this right, you know. And, um, and Fannie Lou Hamer was a great example of that because she had such a compelling story about the, you know, being beat in a wine on a jail cell for trying to cast a ballot, you know, being arrested, being fired, all these challenges that she'd faced just to exercise a very fundamental American right. Well, talk about also... Um Fannie Lou Hamer's, because uh, I really don't want to, you know, I know a lot of folks know about the beating and the way you detail it in the book. I I don't think uh, we want to really get into that because it was a brutal thing what happened to her. But uh, talk about also um, what happens um, to her change in rhetoric, where at one moment she's talking, and she's giving speeches, she's talking basically about her life, her experiences, and then it kind of switches to the injustice of America. Mm-hmm. And talk about yeah. that. Well, and this is, um, Greg, what I, and it, what I find so amazing about Fannie Lou Hamer and what attracted me to want to write a dissertation and then a book about her is that, yes, she only had a grade school education, but she was a gifted gifted order. She had this ability to extemporaneously talk about her life and, and tell experiences that had happened in her life and connect those with larger American themes, you know, of justice and liberty and freedom, but also with biblical themes, talking about, um, you know, Moses uh, and talking about stories about Paul and Silas found in jail. So she was able to connect up her personal experiences and uh, relate them to the larger American story and all also, in, in doing that, she was able to craft a reflection of our country that was quite damning. And so if she, when she got up before the Democratic National Convention or the Credentials Committee there and talked about being beaten and talked about being fired and talked about the house being shot into where she went to seek refuge, um, she was detailing these very specific encounters. But then she concludes that address by saying, is this America? Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, you know, where we're experiencing this sort of harassment? And she's asking the nation, you know, is this what you believe in? Are these our principles? Because this is what's happening to me, right? This is the reality that's occurring out there. And so she was able to say, you know, these are my experiences, and if you believe that that is wrong, then you have to work with us to get more representation in Mississippi and to get protection um, for all people to be able to cast ballots. And so she really was able to talk about the personal events that happened in her life and connect them up with larger American injustices. And, and also she could do this really well, connecting them to biblical themes to give them even more significance. You know, and it's so funny, uh, as I was reading the book, uh, she's very popular, I mean, she's popular everywhere, but she's very popular up in Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Yeah. yeah. And I just thought it was kind of, as I was reading, I was thinking the whole time about the current situation in Wisconsin with the governor. Yes there and what he's trying to do. And I'm reading some of the speeches and I was saying, God, I wish someone like that was around right now to talk to the governor. 
Because it's the you know it's the she's talking about labor, the labor movement. Mm-hmm. She's talking, you know, just everything that is trying to be shut down now. She's talking about health care while she's up there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of these issues that are still, unfortunately, that are relevant as far as nothing has changed. And yeah. I just want, you know, I would like you to talk about also the relationship because it's, you know, because you show some things. I want to get back to the '64 convention. Sure. The reaction. Of Johnson, President Johnson, and, and uh, at the time Senator Hubert Humphrey to her, mm-hmm. and the repercussions of all that that are still in existence years from now. Because I want you to fast forward also to the commemoration that they did for, I guess, in the 2000, in 2012, the fallout at the 1964 um, Democratic National Convention was essentially um, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which was um, organized uh, around the same time, the 63-64, that SNCC was mobilizing in the Delta. Um, This organization came together, and they argued that um, blacks were being excluded from the Democratic Party um, in Mississippi, and they were able to document their exclusion. Doors were literally locked during caucus meetings to keep blacks out, um, you know, different days were advertised, uh, you know, so blacks would show up to the meetings and they would have already occurred. They were just excluded from taking part in uh, the democratic process. And so they argued that um, given the exclusion of African Americans from um, the regular Democratic Party, uh, the, the regular Democratic Party shouldn't be seated at the convention. And instead, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which was an integrated party um, and had followed all the rules of forming a political party in Mississippi and was loyal to President Johnson, that this party should be seated in their place. Now, it sounds good on face, and it sounds just on its face, but the problem that Johnson was worried about was that if he um, unseated the all-white Mississippi regular party that was sent from the state and seated this integrated party in its place, that all of the parties from the South would walk out. That was his worry. Um, and so they, he you know, offered a compromise to the um, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which was very insulting, um, offered just two seats to um, a party of 68 people, um, and then specified that Fannie Hamer could not be one of the people that sat um, in those seats, so it would have to be a, a white chaplain, uh, Reverend Edwin King, um, and uh, Dr. Aaron Henry, a, a dentist from Clarksdale. Uh, so um, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party rejects this insulting compromise, and uh, it doesn't have any representation, official representation, at the 1964 uh, Democratic National Party. But the Democratic National Party does promise to never again seat an integrate, uh, excuse me, a segregated delegation from any state. Um, and they make true to this promise um, in 1968. Uh, the what became the Loyalist Party. It was a um, some of the members of the Mississippi. Freedom Democratic Party and other people from Mississippi, but it was an integrated delegation, and they were seated um, instead of the all-white party sent from the state. And actually, at that um, convention, Fannie Lou Hamer got a standing ovation when she took her seat at the 1968 um, Democratic National Convention. And let's fast forward to 2004, because you have some issues with the tributes that are going on. I mean, some of them you, you talk about in the book, you actually... Appreciated, but some of them were. Well, you describe them. Well, sure. I mean, I think what, um, what I, I, I don't know if object would be too strong of a word, but what seems to sort of um, 
trouble me is that uh, during these tributes, during the tributes that the Mississippi Free, uh, that um, the Democratic National Party makes to the memory of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, so this would be you know fast forward 50 years and they're um, acknowledging them, and uh, it's just that Fannie Lou Hamer and her memory gets distilled into this sort of I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired refrain, and she you know did say that that's on her uh, tombstone, that's that's one of her um, more famous phrases. Uh, but again, I, I think, and Greg, you certainly um, seem to agree that she's so much more than that, and the challenge was so much more than that. And there are still um, problems within the Democratic Party in terms of representation and voice and those things that Samuel Hamer was fighting for. And um, again, the tributes seemed so one-dimensional without acknowledging, you know, again, what would Samuel Hamer and what would other members of the MFDP have to say about the party now, um, and what could we learn in terms of being introspective um, from uh, you know their critiques uh, in in at, nine, at the 1964 convention. Now you are um, we're about to conclude this interview, but you're in the process of making a documentary yeah. on Fannie Lou Hamer. Mm-hmm. And I know there's been a I know there was one way back when on her. Yeah. And I know this one's going to be very extensive. And I'm looking forward to this. And I'm hope you know, and I'm just hoping a lot of folks. Uh, We'll see it, but tell us a little bit about the documentary. I mean, what, sure. When, it, when will it be out? Um, who are you working with? Yeah, absolutely. So I am not a documentarian by trade, uh, but luckily we've got some uh, great people on the team who are. And um, the the thing that will really differentiate this documentary um, from previous works, which you know I certainly respect the previous works that have been made. Um, there just simply hadn't been a lot of resources out about Hamer. I you know it took um, me and uh, Davis W. Houck of uh, Florida State University doing a lot of legwork and archival work to recover um, Fannie Hamer resources for both this book that you mentioned, Greg, and also an edited collection of her speeches that we put together. Right. Um, and so with these works coming out and, and the, the research, sort of the groundwork that um, Davis and I have been able to do, um, we were asked by um, Fannie Lou Hamer's uh, great niece, Miss um, Monica Land, um, to come on board, and she had this beautiful vision of uh, always doing a documentary of her aunt and just didn't quite have um, the background and um, the, the sort of research that Davis and I had uh, to do it. And so um, Davis and I agreed and were the researchers on the film, but the director of the film um, is Joseph Davenport, and he runs a company called Manship Films. And so he, we're the, the four of us are working together on this documentary, and it's really in its initial stages now. Um, Davis and I have gathered most of the audio recording um, footage of Fannie Lou Hamer um, that I think is out there, though we're always accepting more. So if you happen to have a speech of, her, uh, of hers in your basement or something, which is how I found some of them in Wisconsin, uh, we'd love uh, love to hear it and, and love to feature it in the documentary. But we've got most of the audio material together. Um, Joseph Davenport has been doing some uh, film footage uh, in the Mississippi Delta. We did some filming at the um, 2012 uh, commemoration and dedication of the statue. Um, so, yeah, we're, it's definitely in the works. I hope, you know, in, in the next oh, couple years it'll be out. I know uh, in uh, 2017 it would have been Fannie Lou Hamer's 100th birthday, so we'd always love to shoot for that, but I don't know if we'll quite have it out by then. That, that would be really great. And, you know, and it, it, it hit me as I was reading your book, is that when she passed, she was only 59. Only 59, and yeah. I just always thought she was older. And I said, no, that's right, she was just 59. 
Yeah. She was just yeah. young when she was doing all this. And, you well, know, and I was, you know, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say that her friends within the movement, you know, Reverend Edwin King shared this with me, and um, Dr. Elsie Dorsey told me that, you know, she was sick so often uh, within the movement, but she was the type of person that would always make sure everybody else got to the doctor and that everybody else got cared for and um, really let herself um you know, go to the point of nervous exhaustion, to the point of, you know, she uh, ended up with dying really of complications related to breast cancer, hypertension, diabetes. Um, you know, she was she she was in poor health, and that was one of the arguments that she made throughout her career about the need um, for um, economic help and, uh, you know, f- helping. She, she started a food farming cooperative in her hometown um, because she could see the effects that poverty had on health. I mean, she lived that firsthand. You know, and it's so sad. You know, I don't want to give everything away in the book her whole life, but it is, you know, it is kind of sad what happens near the end of her life, and I want listeners out there to get the book and find out what happened and the other things about her, because we haven't even touched on, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer's role in the, in the women's movement, the feminist movement, because mm-hmm. that's a huge thing. I had forgotten that Absolutely. she had written an article about it in Essence Magazine. I'd forgotten yep. all about yeah. that. Yeah. You know, but the book is a voice that could stir an army. Fannie Lou Hamer and the rhetoric of the Black Freedom Movement is by Megan Parker Brooks, my guest today. Now, Megan, I want to ask you: Do you think you know you're doing the documentary? But you know, there are a lot of folks out there that they their former documentary is seeing a movie like Selma. Unfortunately, you know, do you think there'll ever be? And I've always said that Fannie's life is a perfect movie. And I said this since the seventies when she was still living. Do you think there'll ever be a movie about her made? Well, I think there is a movie being made actually right now about her. Um I don't know too much about it. They haven't um contacted me, uh but I did see some very expensive camera equipment at the um the dedication uh of the statue oh. and I have heard sort of rumors and I've seen things that there's been some fundraising for a major motion picture about Fannie Hamer's life. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the next, you know, couple years we see something coming out. I don't know um it, yeah, I mean, I don't know how true to her life it will be because I, you know, working with people in her family and working with people in her community, I haven't heard much about, um, you know, who these filmmakers are, what kind of, you know, background research they're doing. But I right. agree with you that it would make a, a wonderful story. I mean, a truly American story in the sense that it has, you know, the pieces of tragedy um, and, you know, some triumph, but also setback and, you um, yeah, I mean, I think it would. I think it would be a powerful, powerful motion picture. Yeah, I, I definitely do. And also, I want to ask you one more thing too, because you bring this up sure. in the book too. Um, I like the fact that you talk about how the history books treat her, especially the books for young people, and talk a little yeah. bit about that because it's kind of what we've been saying the whole time. But yeah. just talk about th- that. Yeah, well, one of the reviewers, one of the initial reviewers for the book before, my book before it came out, said, wouldn't it be interesting to find out how Fannie Lou Hamer is taught in U.S. history classes? And I thought, oh, that's a brilliant idea. So um, given her suggestion, I went to the library and ordered, you know, all the popular U.S. history books I could find and um, scoured them to try and see, okay, is Fannie Lou Hamer mentioned? And if she is mentioned, how is she mentioned? And, you know, really it, um, it, it was disappointing. 
I mean, she was not mentioned very often, and when she was mentioned, it was in the context of, predictably, the 1964 Democratic National Convention and her, you know, eight-minute, ten-second testimony uh, before the Credentials Committee, and um, that was about it. And so the whole premise for this book that I wrote was that, yes, that was a powerful speech that she gave, and it, it, can, it definitely warrants our attention and our notice, and it um, should have the historical legacy that it has had. But what I argue is there is so much more to this woman's activist career, her really 15-year activist career, than that eight minutes and ten seconds. And so I really want readers to find out, you know, yes, like you mentioned, she spoke with Malcolm X. She spoke um, at Vietnam, anti-Vietnam Vietnam War rallies. She um, spoke at the founding meeting of the National Women's Political Caucus. Um, she traveled to Africa. She, um, you know, spoke at the 1968 Democratic National Convention uh, and the 1972 Democratic National Convention. So there are so many more speeches, and I argue in the book that um, I kind of give a, give away my favorite of her speeches is actually a speech that she gave um, at a old um, Negro Baptist school uh, in um, 1964 in Indian in Mississippi before, you know, just a mass meeting audience like we were talking at the outset right. about the importance of mass meetings. And I think it's, it was a 45-minute speech, and um, thanks to Moses Moon and um, the Smithsonian Archives, we have a recording of this speech, and it is powerful. And it, uh, it is, you know, I think uh, the most amazing speech that she gave throughout her career. So I talk about that in this book. And I also want to mention, um, for those of you maybe not able to buy the book, we do have free resources on uh, the Voices of Democracy website, Davis, how can I put together a unit for teachers um, that offers um, a transcript of that speech, that 1964 speech I just mentioned, um, and also an analysis of the speech, um, resources and questions for uh, the classroom, and a recording of that speech. So you can go to the Voices of Democracy website um, and hear it and um, think about implementing some of those tools into your classroom. And it would be appropriate for um, certainly high school and college, but maybe even some junior high units uh, as well. And I've been on that little website too to prepare for the show, and frankly, it's for everyone. There's yeah, so many it's folks free that and, need it. Yeah. Especially some of these historians who are putting the wrong information out there. But that's another story there. <laughs> but that's another thing. But, Megan, I just want to thank you for being on today and look to meet you one day. Yeah. You know, just thank you in person for writing just a great book on Fannie Lou Hamer and. You know, just just thank you again. And the name of the book, again, is A Voice That Could Stir an Army, Fannie Lou Hamer in the Rhetoric of the Black Freedom Movement, written by my guest today, Megan Parker Brooks. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you, Greg. Take care. All right. You take care, too. Bye. And if you want to know, you know, if you want to know your history, you know, that's what we do in the show. You know, we play music, but we also talk the history. And if you want to know something about the history of the great Fannie Lou Hamer, get this book. A Voice That Could Stir an Army, Fannie Lou Hamer and the Rhetoric of the Black Freedom Movement by Megan Parker Brooks is on University Press of Mississippi. And I'm going to play another song of hers. I'm going to do Fannie Lou Hamer singing Wade in the Water. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Wade in the water.
Since I went down to register, there's been bloodhounds in front of my door. We being harassed, and whether I work at home or wash, the bills go high and high. Everything to put me out of rural is being done, but I'll be right there fighting for freedom until God say enough done. We worked all of March, and as was to be expected, there was more violence. Sam Block and Willie Peacock were shot at in front of the office one night as they were parked, having come back from the church where they were getting together a clothes shipment. White men drove up close by the car, took a shotgun and blasted through the windows, so close that the pellets didn't have a chance to spread out, and luckily none of the four people in the car were injured. About a week later, a group of white men shot into a group of Negroes coming out of the Negro theater. And then finally, late in March, one of our workers, George Green, was shot at just as he entered his house, having returned home late at night from work in the office. That next morning, we gathered on the church steps at Wesley Methodist Church in Greenwood and started singing. Get on board, children, children, get on board, children, children, get on board, children, children, and fight for human rights. We know as freedom fighters that we may go to jail, but when you fight for freedom, the Lord will go your bail. Get on board, children, children, get on board. We sang and we sang and we sang. And people gathered around and finally we sang We Shall Overcome in a big circle. And I talked to them and explained to them why I thought we needed to walk downtown to do two things. To protest to City Hall about the shootings. Because any time unlicensed cars drive around the town and subsequently shoot at Negroes with white people in the car, the police have to be implicitly involved. It doesn't seem to me possible that unlicensed cars with white men in them can drive around the Negro community and cause violence, and the police don't know about them. So we were going to protest to the police at City Hall and then go on to the courthouse to register another type of protest and try and register to vote. We never got to the courthouse. We were met at the police station with police dogs. They told us to turn around or the dog would be turned loose on them. I never thought that Greenwood peoples would treat Negroes that been around here, that nursed their children and cooked for them and farmed this land, that they would have those type of police that would put dogs on humans. I was knocked off my feet the other day I saw a terrible thing happen. I saw him put a dog on a first-class citizen, decent man, and told him he was a black, subtle bitch. Kennedy is your God. I never will overcome it. A black son of a bitch. A man is not a son of a bitch. A man is a created being made in God's image. And when God made man, he said he was good. And I don't think no man ought to be on the police phone unless he know God. I don't think he is one. Or to be among men's. We going up there without a pocket knife. Men coming out with guns and everything. Mine men. With guns around like that. I think men that 
on the police force ought to be the best men. They ought to know God, and they ought to be able to love humanity. No man is fitting to be nothing, no police nothing, if he's not got the grace of God in him. Galatians 6, it reads like this. Be not deceived, whatsoever man sow, he going to reap it. Elijah told Ahab, the same dog that licked Nabal's blood will lick yours. Yeah. All right. The same man that sick the dog on Tucker going to get dog bit yeah. in a different form. God going to sick the dog on him. For us, the events in Greenwood represented a major breakthrough. For the first time, we had hundreds of people lined up at the courthouse in an effort to register to vote. We had gotten people off the plantations where they'd been strapped in the toughest way to economic poverty and the mores of segregation and gotten them to come in and face the white man. And that was Bob Moses, SNCC organizer, civil rights organizer, still around. He's still around, Bob Moses, and also Fannie Lou Hamer. And I don't know who the gentleman who spoke about the Bible and the police and all was, but just a citizen down there in Mississippi, but just to give you an idea of what, you know, what these folks were dealing with, and that's why I was, I'd like to have these shows, I continue, you know, this is, this is Black History Month, but it's Black History Month every week on the Root and Root Show, because we try to give you the true history, and not, you know, just African-American history, African history, and just history in general, and talk about newsmakers also playing music on here, and just getting you informed. And we're going to switch gears now, and I want to thank Megan Parker Brooks for being on here again today. And we're going to do a couple of tributes to uh, some birthday folks, starting to, with uh, earlier this week, uh, Sonny Stitt, the great tenor saxes, had a birthday. And we'll play him along with um, Gene Ammons. This is from an album called tenor bosses and I'm going to play blues up and down so let's hear that on the Root and Root show
great Sonny Stitter had a birthday earlier this week, and also the great Gene Ammons, both of them tenor saxes playing from the CD Tenor Bosses, and that was Blues Up and Down. Hope you enjoyed that on the Root and Root Show, and I want to let you know, too, that I want to say hi out there to my friends in Denver in particular who are listening on a delayed basis on KUHS Denver Radio and Television. So I want to say hi to my friends out there in particular. I want to thank Henry Archuleta for giving me this opportunity to rebroadcast these shows from Blog Talk to Denver and we're going to be doing them live from Denver soon, so don't, you know, just stand by for that. But I hope you're enjoying the show tonight on the Root and Root Show. And I, you know, I did something horrible last night. I mentioned that it was the birthday last night being, this is a delayed basis, so this is live now, so it's February 6th, Friday, February 6th, is when I played last night two songs in tribute to Bob Marley. And I thought about that all day today. I said, look. I played two Bob Marley songs as a tribute on his birthday. Bob Marley is a legend. Without him, reggae music is not what it is. It's just like, how can I devote? That's like doing a tribute to James Brown and playing Please, 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 and that's it, or doing a tribute to Duke Ellington and just play Satin Doll, that's it, just play, and that's it. These are people who deserve, I mean, Bob Marley is legendary. He's still... Is just, you know, just beloved by everyone that loves music, that really is into music, not just reggae music, just music. And he was a, a pioneer as far as not just the music, but just his message as far as love and peace and talking about revolution and uniting Africa. It, just, it did so much. So I'm going to devote the next 30 minutes, probably more than actually, to the music of Bob Marley. And I'm going to start off with... Africa Unites, so let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
Put all the people all the time And now you see the light 
Jump. 
played there was 40 minutes or so of Bob Marley music. Uh, that last one was Zimbabwe. Before that, we did Slave Driver, then Punky Reggae Party, One Love, No Woman, No Cry, the live version, Jammin', I Shot the Sheriff, Get Up, Stand Up, and Africa Unite. I hope you enjoyed those, you know, all those songs there and just, you know, I hope you enjoyed that tribute to Bob Marley. And, you know, we do tributes on here because it's the Root and Root Show and that's, you know, Roots music as far as reggae. So I hope you enjoyed that segment. But we're going to get to more music right now in the next 16 minutes or so. And I'm going to do another Don Corvey because I did a tribute to him yesterday because he passed earlier this week. I'm going to play, let's see, let's do Fat Man. So let's hear the Fat Man on the, by Don Corvey on the Root and Root Show. And away!
just a bit more grab and rock against this. Can I kick it? You know that I can do with the back of my hand. You remember that? Oh, what you Yo, that is that. Before that, we did the Fat Man by 
Don Corvey, and we're getting ready to get out of here with the Brute and Brute Show. I hope you enjoyed the music this evening. I hope you enjoyed my special guest this evening. Megan Parker Brooks wrote the book about Fannie Lou Hamer on the University Press of Mississippi. Go check it out, A Voice That Could Stir an Army. It's a great book about some stuff you don't know about Fannie Lou Hamer and also about the whole civil rights movement, the black liberation movement, especially about SNCC. And just, just a great book. And and as I have said in the past on the show, too, and I just continue to say it, you know, that I'm glad that movies like Selma are out there and other movies that are finally showing the history, but most of these movies movies aren't true history. You have to read a book, see a documentary or something, and just really learn the history, just really learn history, and just, you know, so you can just better yourself. That's it. But we're going to be back here next week on the Root & Root Show um, Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and also on delayed basis on KUHS in Denver, Colorado, Denver Radio and TV. Thanks to Henry Archuleta, and I'm going to leave you this evening. I think we will do take like a song we can get on here in the last couple of minutes of the show here. But next week we'll be doing on Friday show. We'll be um, talking about the legacy of the Soul Starers, the great gospel group after Sam Cooke. And then Saturday we're going to have our slow jam special for Valentine's Day. So if you got a request, uh, you can go on Facebook, uh, find me, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D, or you can go on Twitter, at Unifix, U-N-I-F-I-C, S as in Sam, and you can also go on Blog Talk Radio and look at the Root and Root Show, and just make your comments, questions, or anything, or requests for a slow jam on Valentine's Day, a request for someone you want a song played for on those uh, social media sites. Also, if you're looking for, we're looking for advertising here, so if you want to advertise on the show and support the show, that would be great. And We're getting a lot of followers now, and we're going to continue to get that. So I just want to thank everyone out there who listens to the show. And We're going to leave you today. I'm trying to find some. I think we'll do. Jimmy Davis, he's a real humdinger, so... This is Greg Rashid again with the Root and Root Show. Going love and going peace. We'll see you next Friday. Take care. Jimmy Davis, she's a real humdinger. Talk about your girls, but you ought to see mine. She ain't so good looking, but she dress so fine. She's long, she's tall, she's a handsome queen. She's got ways like a mowing machine. She's a humdum dinger from Dingersville. Do watch her strut her stuff. I took her to church in my hometown. Preacher got hot and throwed his Bible down. Says I've been a preaching long, long time. Deacon, get yours, boys, I got mine. She's a humdum dinger from Dingersville. Do watch her strut her stuff Old brother Deaton by the old fireplace Run that sister one off all race Overtook her way uptown 
She got warm and turned his damper down. She's a humdum danger from Dangersville. Do watch her strut her stuff. Don't you bother me I'll whip you down with a single tree She's a humdum danger from Dangersville Do watch her strut her stuff Now church is over, singing's done Not much preaching but lots of fun She's a humdum danger from Dangersville Do watch her strut her stuff 